theyeshiva.net. Truth be told, our theme this evening is one of the most difficult to address. The question we're addressing tonight is, where is God when it hurts? Where is the Rebbeinu Shalolam when there's so much suffering and pain? Or the question known as theodicy, why do bad things happen to good people? Why so much suffering? Why so much pain? Why so much agony? It's not a question that was created today. It's a question that goes back 5,776 years from the day that the Creator of the world allowed the first two siblings to enter into a fight and the first children to be born where it was also the beginning of the first war where one brother murdered his brother and from then everything just went downhill <laughs> with a few exceptions the reason it's a difficult topic is because this is not a philosophical topic alone although many philosophers discussed it it's not a topic it's not a theme it's life it affects people in the deepest places in the most raw spaces of their being it's naked, it's real, it's vulnerable, it's authentic, and it's painful. I remember an experience, an observation, an experience I observed, I experienced, and it reminded me what never to do. I was in Yerushalayim once in Jerusalem, and I was sitting at a lecture that a prominent professor was giving about this question. How do you reconcile faith in God with suffering? To say it, God is good, God is just, and nonetheless so much suffering in the world. And this man for an hour and a half explained everything rationally, quote unquote, to the point that in his mind it made perfect sense. And he said, now at last you understand why good people suffer. There was a, woman, a young woman in the audience, probably 18, 19 years old, and she, said, she raised her hand. She said, may I ask a question? He said, sure. She said, have you ever been to a cancer ward for children? Were there children suffering from cancer? He said, no. She said, I have just been there for three months watching my cousin die, pass away. I want to suggest you go to there, that ward, and give your lecture there, to the mothers, to the fathers, to the children. Now, if I would have been the professor, I would have said, I'm sorry, and you step down, you bite the bullet and you go eat. He started to explain himself that he was right. She was wrong and he was right. And what I saw at that moment was, he was completely in his own world. 
And rationally, he was making all of these calculations, but nobody could listen any longer because uh, he lacked that basic human trait called empathy. I share this with you because in my experience, I sometimes see and hear rabbis, rabbonim, teachers, scholars, otherwise good and wonderful people. Somebody asks them, why did this happen to me? Why is this happening to me? And without skipping a heart's beat, they have an answer. They explain. It's good. Whatever their explanation is. And uh, I want to say it nicely. I don't know if it's going to come out nicely. Usually this response comes from one of two things. Either from cruelty. But they're not cruel people. It comes from a certain cluelessness. Sometimes there's cruelty and sometimes there's stupidity. And it reminds me of a story that I think is extremely telling and relevant to our discussion. I read this story years ago about a Jew, his name was Reberish Meislish, he lived in Russia. He had a yeshiva, that he was the Russian yeshiva, he was the head of the yeshiva, and uniquely he didn't have to fundraise for the yeshiva, he paid for his own yeshiva. How? He had a business on the side. Russia has vast forests. He used to export lumber from Russia to Western Europe, and he made a very nice living, he supported his family, he supported his yeshiva, wonderful. The supply was always smaller than the demand, so he realized there's real potential for growth. So one year he decided he's going to go big. He borrowed millions of rubles, he leased complete forests, leased many ships, and decided to trans- transport huge quantities of lumber from Russia through the Black Sea to Western Europe, And hopefully he would generate enormous revenue that would sustain him and his children and his grandchildren. Sadly, unfortunately, en route through the Black Sea to Western Europe, the ships went down. Three ships went down full of his lumber. It was all lost. News came back to the shtetl where he lived that this great Jew, who was both a great scholar and a great Balchasad, in a moment suddenly his fate was transformed. He was now poverty-stricken, and he was in debt, millions of rubles, dealing with the Russian government. A mess. And a mess that would continue likely for years and years, maybe to the end of his life. The yeshiva heard the news, and they said somebody has to go break the news to the Rebbe, to the Rosh Yeshiva, to Rebbe, who's going to go? So one of the boys said, I'll go. So one of the teachers said, Abezagis Metzeichel. Don't just tell him what happened. Do it with Seichel, with sensitivity. Sure. So he goes to the house of his Rebbe, Rebbe Rish Meislish knocks on the door, Rav Meislish opens the door, said, yes, my son, what brings you? He says, Rebbe, Rebbe, I came to ask a question. He says, sure, what's your question? He says, I don't understand the Mishnah. He says, go ahead, which Mishnah? He says, there's a Mishnah at the end of Masechet Brachas. The end of Tractate Brachas, the Mishnah says, Chayev Adam Levorich Alaroh, Kishem Shemavorich Alatayv, Brachas Daf Nundala. A person is obligated to thank Hashem for bad fortune, just as he blesses and thanks Hashem for good things. And the Gemara explains there a few pages later, to accept it with joy. He says, Rebbe, I don't understand the Mishnah. How can you demand from a person, a rational, ordinary human being, 
to thank Hashem for bad things just as he thanks Hashem for good things. It's senseless. Without skipping a heart's beat, Rebbeirish says, I'll explain it to you. It's not so hard to understand. It's a simple math. Two plus two equals four. It's as simple as that. He says, what do you mean? He says, do you accept, do you believe that God is good? He says, yeah. Number two, do you believe that God orchestrates every single event in the world down to the smallest detail? He says, yeah. He says, two plus two equals four. If Hashem orchestrates and governs and directs, and there is providence on every single detail that occurs in his world, and Hashem is good, so two plus two equals four, everything is good. He says, Rebbe, come on. <laughs> doesn't make sense. It's not good, it's horrible. He says, listen, rationally or philosophically, with your mind, you can understand it. I understand that emotionally, you may not always be able to comprehend it, to feel the goodness. But rationally, it's two plus two equals four. God orchestrates every detail in the world. Anything that happens with any person at any moment, in any space, any encounter, any experience, from the moment of birth to the moment of death, all comes from Hashem, and Hashem is good. Two plus two equals four. Everything is good. He says, Rebbe, Rebbe, I, I, don't, I don't get it, I'm sorry. He says, here you don't get it. But here you get it in your mind, you get it. You may not see it, you may not understand how it works. You may see it in a year, you may see it in five years, you may see it in ten years. Maybe in fifty years you'll see that it's good. Maybe you'll see it in the next world, maybe in five hundred years, maybe you'll never see it. But it doesn't take away from the fact that two plus two equals four. God controls the whole world, every detail, God is good. Everything is good. He says, Rebbe, can I ask a hypothetical question? He says, go ahead. Let's say somebody comes to you and says that all the three boats that you leased went down in the Black Sea. You lost all your lumber for the rest of your life. You are going to be in debt to the Russian Tsarist government. Your yeshiva is going to close. You won't have bread on your table. What should your response be to that piece of news? He said, I just explained to you. I should say, Boruch Hashem, thank Hashem for the goodness that you bestowed upon me. He says, really? What's so good about that? I said, I just told you. God runs the world, so he was in control. He orchestrated and he's good. It must be good even if I don't see it. He says, Rebbe, Last week, I saw you dancing at your daughter's wedding with tremendous joy. Maybe you should dance when you hear such type of news as well. He says, I didn't think of it in such terms, but come to think about it, I should. Because God runs the whole world and God is good. That means it's good. I should dance. I should be besimch. He says, Rebbe, hey, Bon Thompson. Rebbe, start dancing. Rebbeirish understood, so he fainted. He fainted on the spot. So the student went and brought cold water and revived him with the cold water. The first words he said when he awoke, I'll say them in Yiddish and then translate, he said, Jetzt verstehe ich euch nicht die Mishnah. Now, I also don't understand the Mishnah. And this is profound. It's real. It's authentic. Often people have explanations. When it comes to somebody else, 
I'll find you every reason to explain how wonderful it is. But when it comes to himself or herself, now suddenly all the explanations can be thrown into the dust, but now I don't understand the Mishnah. A little while ago I was at a Shabbaton for an organization called uh, A-Time. There were a few hundred couples who are yearning for a child, dealing with infertility, yearning for a child. They came together for a Shabbos. One of the couples came over to me Friday night and uh, the wife says, I want to share with you a story. <laughs> and since she shared it with me, I think I could share it. She said, once this famous rabbi who was some type of Kabbalist came to town. There was a Jew, a farmer. He comes to him. He says, Rebbe, I need a Yeshua. I, need, I heard you're great in Zgulus. You're great in all types of things to deal with horrible situations. He said, yeah, what happened? He said, last night suddenly there was a plague. A hundred of my chickens died. What do I do? I'm afraid that my chickens are going to go. I'm, I'm going to lose everything. He says, what I want you to do is, I want you to take challah from Shabbos and feed the challah to the rest of the chickens. This is a big zgula. And they'll survive. Okay. He goes home, he feeds the challah to all the chickens. The next night, a hundred chickens dead. Comes running to this great rabbi. He says, Rebbe, another hundred chickens are dead. I need a zgula, tell me. Didn't work with the challah. He said, no problem. You have kugel left over from Shabbos? He says, yeah. Says the big sgula for chickens to eat kugel al pikabola. You give them kugel, if better, you do shalmi kugel. You give the chickens, they'll survive. He gives the kugel. The next night, a hundred chickens are dead. Comes back running. What are you doing to me? I need a sgula. I'm going to lose everything. He says, chalupzus. <laughs> Stuffed cabbage. You give them to the chickens, they'll survive. He gives the chalupzus that night, another hundred chickens are dead. He comes running back to this Rebbe. He says, Rebbe, Rebbe, none of your zgulis worked. None of your spiritual tricks worked. Do you have any zgulis? I have to say this in Yiddish. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Zgulis habe chasach. The shaila is viful chickens hot here. I have plenty of zgulis. I have a long list. The question is, how many chickens do you have? How many chickens do you have to spare? If we have 20, 30,000 chickens, it's not a problem. Now, the point of this, uh, of this couple was not to mock Khalila Zgula. It was, sometimes, people are busy giving other people Zgulas. A Zgula here, and a Zgula there. There's something, oh, you shut over the heat. There's something I've shared with my students often in the past. They said, how do when somebody asks us, why did Hashem do this? Or why did He allow this to happen? What should I answer? And I tell them, I'm not going to tell you what to answer. All I'll tell you is, don't answer why God did it. For two reasons. First of all, I'm 99.9% sure that you don't know. Last time I met you, you didn't appear like Yeshaya Hanavi 
or Yirmiyah Hanavi, or Amos, or Yecheskel, or Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm not sure you're hearing prophecy at night. There's an old expression in Yiddish, divas, uh, what's the expression? Divas Vesen Zoganish, Divas Zogan Vesenish, right? Those who know don't speak, those who speak don't know. That's number one. But even if you did know, you shouldn't answer them why. Under most circumstances, you know why? That's not what they're asking. When you answer a person's question, it's important not only to answer the question. More importantly is to answer the person. Some people answer questions, but they don't answer people. When a person asks a question, you can't only listen to the question. You have to listen to the person behind the question. This person who just lost their child in a car accident or to terminal illness, or their young wife with a young family of children. Or today there was a tragedy, a, a young man. Every day, when they say to you, why? You think they're looking for a mathematical equation to put it into a puzzle? It's a question coming from their guts, from their kishkas, their whole soul, their heart is asking, why? How can this happen? When you start giving rational explanations, you're not addressing what they're asking. They're looking for emotional solace, for some comfort. And you're becoming a cerebral scientist, even if you do know what to say, besides the fact you don't even know the answer. But even if you would know the answer. A much more honest answer is to give them a hug, to extend your shoulder and let them cry on your shoulder, to look them in the eyes and tell them that you're there for them. To demonstrate real empathy, real friendship, real love, real, real connection. That is in many cases, if not in most cases, a far more accurate and authentic response to this type of question of dilemma. This, I think, is important to emphasize when we address this topic. Now, this doesn't answer the question. <laughs> Why do good people suffer? I think here it's important to remember one important idea. By definition, this question is a religious question. It's not a secular question. To put it simply, the true secularist cannot ask this question. By definition, this is a religious question. And therefore, somebody who asks this question and expects a secular answer is not being honest with themselves because the very question is a religious question. It's not a secular question. And a religious question warrants a religious answer, not a secular answer. Why is it not a secular question? Because here is actually the one detail in life where atheism makes more sense. In other words, in other words, the believer in God has to account for this question. If God exists and God is good, why does He allow so much suffering in His world? Either suffering by people or suffering caused by nature, which from the believer's perspective comes from Hashem. So that's what the Maimon has to answer. 
Or at least that's what the Maimon struggles with. What about the atheist? That question the atheist doesn't have to answer. You know why? It's not a question. Why do good people suffer? Why not? Why not? Nature is amoral. Nature is apathetic. Why should the earthquake stop and say, oh, I see a really nice guy there. I'm not going to harm him. For the atheist, the evil and suffering in the world makes sense. This whole universe is a mistake. It's a makam hefker. It's an ownerless place. Survival of the fittest in Darwin's uh, philosophy. Cookies crumble in different ways. Some cookies crumble at the age of five, and some lucky cookies crumble at the age of 110. And some real lucky cookies in Japan usually crumble at the age of 112. They don't need kishka, so that helps. Cookies crumble different ways. What do you mean, why? Why not? Who do you want should stop and say, oh, it's a young, beautiful person. They shouldn't die. They shouldn't be stabbed. They shouldn't be shot. They shouldn't become ill. So for the atheist, this actually makes sense. (laughs) Why do good people suffer? Why shouldn't good people suffer? Sometimes good people suffer. Sometimes not good people suffer. It's just... It's just a cards game. <laughs> sometimes the card, you get this card, sometimes you get this card. It's pure luck. So the atheist actually doesn't have to account for this question. The atheist, however, has to account for everything else in the world. For everything else the atheist has to account for. The believer could explain everything else in the world. But this one detail, the believer struggles with. The believer has a terrible dilemma with. I had once had an experience... I attended a group. It was a very spiritual, spiritual people in Long Island. There was a fellow there, not Jewish, an Italian. His name was Tony. And Tony shared a personal tragedy in his family. He came from a very dysfunctional family. He said, I had one sister. One sister. Sister was 29 years old. And she, in his words, was the only normal person in my family. Nice, kind, functional. She was the glue. She kept us all together. And Tony says one night, it was 11 o'clock at night, it was pouring rain, she was hungry. So she decided to cross the street to go to the grocery store and buy some chips and cola. And she went, she took, she had a black coat, she took a black dark umbrella, and she was crossing. As she crossed, she went over railway tracks. She bought her chips and, 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 and soda on the way back. She was bent down under her umbrella because it was pouring rain and a train was coming. And it was dark, it was 11 o'clock at night and she was wearing a black coat and she was holding a black umbrella and the driver didn't see her and the train was coming full speed, full force. She was swept away, she died immediately. He turns to me and he says, why? Why, 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 why did this happen? He says, since that day, I am an atheist. I don't believe in God anymore. I knew better than to answer why. I listened. I empathized. What should I say? I know why. 
But every week, during the, there were subsequent groups, he would always turn to me and says, why, Rabbi, why, why? I said, I'm here for you. Finally, after two months, he said, enough being here for me. Answer me why. Oh, now he wanted something else. He didn't want emotional empathy. So I said, Tony, can I be honest with you? He says, sure. I know you're empathetic. You're a nice guy. You feel my pain. Great. But I want to know why. I said, it's very simple. You want to know why she was killed? I'll explain to you. It was 11 o'clock at night. It was dark. It was raining. She was wearing a black coat. Her umbrella was black. She was walking. She was bent down. The driver didn't see her. That's why she was killed. He says, no, why? I'm like, why? I'll explain to you. Because when it's dark, it's hard to see. A train is going in full speed. It's extremely dangerous when you get in its way. It's simply more powerful than the human body. It has more mass. The driver probably couldn't see clearly. She was also bent down, so she didn't even see it coming. And she was wearing dark, so that didn't help. That's why. He's like, Rabbi, I thought you were more intelligent. I know, I'm not asking how, I'm asking why. I said, you? You? You're an atheist. Why not? You expect the train to stop and say, oh, she's a really nice girl. I'm not touching her. Sometimes the train says, he's a nasty guy. Let me do it with Hidur. Let's finish him off fast. She's a really nice young woman. Who, who do you want to make this decision? The driver did it by mistake. You want the metal of the train? You want the car? You want the engine? Who do you want to make the decision? You're saying, why? It was an accident. It was a mistake. It was a horrible mistake. That's why. And I just explained to you how. I said, Tony, maybe you're not such an atheist after all. Deep down, every person asks why. You know why every person asks why? Show me the greatest agnostic and atheist in the world. When they read about a tragedy, or when they hear about a tragedy, or when they see a tragedy, every ordinary, healthy, sensible, functional human being asks why. Maybe not in that, with that word, with that expression, but from our hearts, from our minds, comes out the question, why? Whether it's a tsunami an earthquake, a natural disaster, whether it's an illness, whether it's a terrorist attack, whatever it may be, everyone asks why. But why are we asking why? The why is a religious question. It's predicated on the premise that deep down in the human soul, there is a feeling that justice ought to be the way the world is governed. Compassion righteousness, justice is the way the world is supposed to work. And when a good person suffers, and when a good family experiences agony, there's something off. The person feels it's amiss, it's off, it's not right. But why? Why do we feel that way? It's ridiculous. Who should, who should give the world, who should give us that feeling? You want the train you want doimim, you want inanimate, inorganic matter, you want bacteria, you want chemicals, you want atoms, you want electrons, neutrons, to stop and say, I'm going to be just. So the very question of why bad things happen to good people 
is a question that must have emunah. If there's no emunah, there's no question. It actually makes perfect sense. It's sad, but it makes perfect sense. Now, this still doesn't answer the question. <laughs> it just says that the question is a religious question. So why? So the person who does feel there should be justice, because there is a God who created the world, who sustains the world, who is good, who is just, why does he allow it to happen? Why does he sometimes make it happen? Not only allow it to happen, there's two, times of, two types of evil in the world. There's evil that's created by men, there's a holocaust, there's a terrorist attack, there's ISIS, there's Al-Qaeda, there's Hitler, there's Stalin, there's Pyrrhus, there's Titus, there's Turkomedei, there's Chmolonetsky. And then there's natural disasters that is completely from heaven. There's an accident, there's an illness, it's, and so on and so forth. So, we've all read, we've all heard different approaches and different responses. You'll find them in articles, you'll find them in essays, you'll find them on websites, you'll hear them in seminars. You'll read some of them in Svarim, in holy books, in different types of books, in Judaism. And really every religion and philosophy and history had to address this dilemma. Sometimes people will talk about Gilgulim, reincarnations, that every soul has its own journey, its own history, and therefore its own mystery, and a soul sometimes was here before, and it finished its mission, and it just had to be here for a few years to complete. That's the whole, what's called Teres HaGilgulim, which already exists in early Kabbalah Svarim, you have it in Zoyar, in Parshas Meshpatim, the Ramban, in his introduction to Sefer Yoyev, has a long introduction Darizal was has a whole sefer called Sefer HaGilgulim, Shar HaGilgulim. That's one approach, one component. Others talk about Yisurim Emarkin. Pain refines people, it makes them better, it makes them more sensitive, it makes them pure, it makes them more compassionate. Others talk about sin. People sin and the, this suffering is a form of atonement, it's a form of cleansing. They're cleansed from all their sins and in the next world they can enjoy absolute paradise. And in fact, very often, a common experience of suffering is people blame themselves. They're guilty, they feel guilty, and they ask what terrible things have they done, and if they can't find it, they invent it, or they remember that person who told them how terrible they are, and that justifies the suffering. Others talk about the fact that the body is not, much, it's not very significant. The primary part of a person is a soul, and the soul is never really damaged or killed or dies. The soul lives on eternally. And what happens with the body in this physical world is not very relevant. It's inconsequential. It's not that significant. It's transient. It's temporary. It's a few lousy years of eating sushi, kugel, making money, and trying to... Uh, to show up in life, and then the real life happens in the next world, in the future world, and this world is only a corridor. These are some of the approaches you have heard, you have read over the years, right? You've all heard this, you've all read this. And certainly, there are kernels of truth in each, in each argument I addressed. They're discussed by Gdoyle Yisrael Amitim, by great rabbis, great tzaddikim, great sages. But, this doesn't cut it. It explains perhaps certain details, certain aspects. Sometimes you look at a situation, you have the holiest person, the holiest people, the nicest people, the most innocent people, suffering terribly. You have children, they didn't even have a chance to sin. 
to harm anybody. Little children sometimes suffer for years, sometimes suffer for their whole life, never mind the suffering of their families and children. Seventy years ago there was a holocaust. One and a half million children were gassed. One and a half million children sent to gas chambers. Besides six million, to say they all sinned, it's cruel. It's not true. This is one of the reasons people have such a difficulty with God and with Judaism. I'm being honest with you. Because how could you not? You think this is a God? This is sin? This is how you punish for sin? People have such difficulty with it because it creates, that means that the best people are considered the worst people. It's a very, very difficult pill for people to swallow. All of them were killed because of sin. And does it ever end? Does it ever end? I mean, usually a person is sentenced to prison. Take the American justice system. Justice, injustice, whatever you want to call it. The sooner, when you get closer to the end of your sentence, the conditions become easier, right? With good behavior, the conditions become easier. At the end, they put you in a halfway house. In the Jewish exile, the further it goes, the worse it gets. The worst Chorban happened 1900 years after Golos. So you say, oh, they sinned again, so we'll punish them again. So they'll become atheists again, so they'll sin even more. So it never ends. This is like an endless cycle of, of suffering because they're sinners. So you want to know what answer Rabbi Jacobson is going to invent tonight. <laughs> so I want to tell you, I have found one answer, and it's the best answer. It's the best answer. And I'll be, I'll be frank with you. When I was a little younger, I saw this answer, but I never appreciated it. The older I get, the more I appreciate this answer, above all other answers. And it's really the best answer. The answer consists of three words, which are always the best answers. An answer that you can't say in three words, don't say it. Somebody once told me a speech that you can't say in four minutes, you shouldn't give. I didn't listen to him because I would have to quit my job. The answer consists of three words. We don't know. We really really don't know. And I want to show you where this answer comes up. What's, maybe we do know. This comes from a book that Jews are not so into. It's called the Bible. Yeah, I, I'm serious. I spoke once in front of thousands of non-Jews, Lahavdil. I was quoting the Tanakh. I started a verse, they finished it. They finished it. With Jews, the Tanakh is not such a popular book. One of the 24 Svarim of Tanakh, you should put it on your night table, it's good to read through, at least once in your lifetime. One of the 24 Svarim in Tanakh is the book of Eiv. In English it's called Job. It consists of 42 chapters, Membeis Prak. It's an incredible book. My guess is that most people in this room did not read Eiv from the beginning to the end pretty educated guess. You may have finished Shas two times. <laughs> but Chumash and Tanakh, somehow, I don't know why. Samaza, I do know why, but it's not for now. Eov is an incredible book. 
If you read it, if you learn it, you have to read it with a box of tissues. First of all, the language, the prose, the poetry is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. But the depth, the conversation, the debate is unique. What's the story of Eiv? The story of Eiv is this story. It's the book of Tanakh where Hashem addresses this question. And the Gemara in Baba Basra has an argument, who's the author of Eiv? When was it written? Time of Avram, the time of Moshe. Maybe it's just a metaphor, it's just a metaphor, it's a parable. There's various views and opinions who wrote Eiv and when Eiv was written, it's not clear. Chapter 1 of Eiv introduces the man. And remember, Eiv himself could not know chapter 1 of Eiv. Chapter 1 of Eiv is God talking about Eiv and calling him Ishtam, V'yashar, V'yirei He's a good man, he's a just man, he's a complete man, he's a man who's fearful of God. And he's a blessed man. He has a wonderful wife, he has a big family, he's wealthy, he's healthy. Glik, Gezin, Parnusa, Alts, Gefen. Alts one, Nachas, Shaduchim, whatever you want. Gets Shishi, gets Shlishi, gets Maftis, the honoree at the dinner, lives in a wonderful home with an indoor pool and an outdoor pool. And then, based on a whole conspiracy of the Sutton, tragedy strikes this man, Iyoy. But not just tragedy. Tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. He loses all of his children in freak natural accidents. He loses all of his money. He himself becomes bitterly ill. He has shchin, he has boils all over his body. He tur- turns to his wife and he says, I'm now like when I was born. I came out of my mother's womb. Arum I came out naked. That's what I am today. I have nothing. I'm bereft of anything to hold on to. Hashem Nosan, Hashem Lokach, those are the words. They come from Hashem Nosan, Hashem Lokach, Yishem Hashem Evoiruch. And the Pasuk says he'll never curse Hashem. No blasphemy. Eoiv has three friends who come to visit him. For Shiva. Three friends. We know their names. Eliphaz, Bildod, and Soifer. Sheni Yiddish Eliphaz, Bildod, and Soifer. And then there's a fourth mysterious friend who comes around, a younger guy, his name is Eliyu. For the next, for the next 37 chapters in Eoiv, they debate. The three friends debate Eoiv. Their point is, Eoiv turns to them and says, why? And they say, you must have sinned. You must have sinned. God is just. God is good. God doesn't make mistakes. You look into the mirror and see where you went wrong. And Eoiv protests. He says, it's not true. I am a good man. I never harmed anybody. I always did the right thing. I did not sin. Something wrong happened. Injustice. And they attack him. They criticize him. You're a fool. You're an idiot. You're a heretic. You're a horrible person. He looks at them and he says... You're the fools. You are just, he calls them, chanfonim of God. You're just trying to flatter God. You want him to be on your good side. You don't even believe what you say. I will be honest with Hashem. I will not stop saying the truth. I'm a good man. And my suffering is in vain. Either, either, there's a mistake that happened here, or really God lets evil run this world 
That's what he has an expression. He lets the evil take over this whole earth. There's absolutely no justice. They each speak. He responds. They speak again. He responds. It's very, very intense. It's very, very emotional. It's very, very powerful. And it's very loaded. Throughout the conversation, we're wondering, when will God join the conversation? He waits 37 chapters. Suddenly, Hashem appears to Eov, from the storm. And he now starts speaking for the next two chapters. And this is one of the proofs that God is Jewish. He doesn't give answers. He just asks questions. Eov wants to know why. A good Jew never answers a question. You answer a question with another question. He turns to Eov and he asks Eov the famous opening of Eov, Perek Lamed Zion, the second or third Pasuk, he says, he says, That's my question to you. Eov, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know the wisdom. Who laid the dimensions of the universe? Do you know? Who was the architect? Who was the designer? Who was the contractor? Who created a line around the universe? Who created, who sunk the sackets on which the universe stands? Who cast its uh, cornerstone? And then for two chapters... All he asks Eiv is, have you been there when rain was formed, when snow was formed? Do you know the secret of the sun, of the galaxies, of light, of darkness? Do you know the secret of death? Do you know how an ostrich lays its eggs? Do you know how insects are born, how mammals are born, how fish, how, how the water goes, how clouds, lightning? He goes through dozens and dozens of items of cosmology of biology and of nature, and he tells Eiv, can you tell me how all this happens? Can you explain this to me? There's an expression he says, Yeshla matar of, oimi helid egle tal. Does rain have a father? Are you its father? And who is the mother of dew? Mi beten mi yotza hakerach. From whose womb did ice form? Ukfer shamayim mi yeladoi. Who gave birth to the frost of heaven? Examples of details of nature. Basically, Eiv, let's discuss a little science. Let's discuss a little biology. Let's discuss nature. At some point, he turns to him and he says, Do you hunt the prey for the old lion? The old lion is hungry. Do you go and bring them the food? Do you fill the appetite of young lions? Do you know what happens? Did you create these lions? Do you feed them? When they crouch in their dens, they abide in their, in their, in their, uh, in their domains to lie in wait. You have to know the nature of lions to understand these psukim. So you, you created these lions, you're there with them in the dens, you bring them the prey. Who prepares for the raven his prey? El El 
because the young ravens cry out to God, they wander for lack of food, do you feed them? And he goes on and on with these types of psukim. Two chapters, Eir responds, another two chapters from Hashem. And what's fascinating is he never answers the question. Eir said, why did I suffer? Why did all this happen to me? I was a good person, I was just. Hashem doesn't answer. All he's telling Eoiv is he's asking him questions. And his questions bring out one point. Eoiv, you don't know the first thing about creation. You think you'll understand the creator? We would put it in our terminology today. Eoiv, can you explain to me one cell of the 40 trillion cells in the body? And you are going to understand the one who created the author of the whole cosmos? You don't understand a single star, a single galaxy. The dynamics of the organism of one animal from millions. There's billions, quintillions of insects and animals and flowers. And you think you're going to understand the creator? One egg you can't wrap your brain around. We don't even understand today one atom. And in everything in this mic, there's billions of atoms. We don't understand one atom. We don't understand one, at, one, one cell. You're going to understand the author behind it? Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? You weren't there in the beginning. Now you want to understand the end? Imagine you're reading a novel, a 2,000 page, uh, 2000 page novel. And you read a few chapters in the middle. And you say, this doesn't make sense. I don't like what's happening here. At Rabid, it's a 2,000 page novel. You go back to the beginning. Read the whole book till the end. And then things can come together. We live 50, 100, 120 years in the span of thousands and thousands of years. We have our own perspective. And even if you could live from the beginning of time till today, can you fathom the source of it? The little man who's smaller than a speck of dust on planet Earth. On planet Earth. How long does it take to go around planet Earth, you know? If you go the speed of light, speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. It's pretty fast. Speed of light, 180. If you, if you can run, if you can go in the speed of light, how long does it take to go around planet Earth? Seven seconds. Seven seconds to go around planet Earth with the speed of light. How long does it take to go from one end of the universe through the whole universe, what we know? Speed of light, 28 billion years. So you're one person on this planet, the universe, you don't even begin to begin to begin to begin to have any comprehension even of its size, never mind of its dynamics. Now you think you understand, you're going to understand the author. You don't understand birth, you think you can understand death. We say death is mysterious. It's unfathomable. Birth is not mysterious. We ask a question, why do people die? Eoiv, why don't you ask the question, why are people born? Why are people born? The whole life is mystery. The whole life is one big secret. One transcendental mystery. After this speech of Hashem, which is basically a bunch of questions, Eoiv responds. Take a look. I quoted this Eoiv Perik Membez. It takes 41 chapters. Vayan Eoiv Hashem Vayoimar. Eoiv responds to Hashem. And what does he say? Oven. Nifloi 
This is what Eve says. The best answer ever given in history. After God himself had a chance to justify himself. The only time Hashem said, I'm here. And Eve says, so tell me. And all Eve says at the end is, I don't understand. It's beyond me. Till now I heard about you. Now I see you. Doesn't mean I understand you. Just means I see you. But therefore I have to rethink everything I said. Now, something fascinating happens. When you read Eoiv till this, you're convinced Eoiv is close to blasphemous. He speaks about Hashem in very different ways than his friends. His friends are justifying God. They're saying Hashem is tzedek, everything is just, he knows what he's doing, who do you think you are, you're a sinner. Each friend says it in a different way. And Eoiv is saying, no, I'm not going to chan for Hashem, I'm going to tell him the truth, I'm right. Suddenly, after Eoiv says, I don't understand, Hashem spoes to Eoiv. Hashem turns to Eliphaz, the Yemenite, the friend of Eoiv. And he says, Chora api b'cha. Chora api b'cha u b'shnei reyecha. I am angry at you and your two friends. Why? Ki loi di barte melei nechoyna ka'avdi Eoiv. You didn't speak to me correctly like my servant Eoiv. And one reads this and says, Gevald Geshrei. They were the believers. Eoiv was the problem maker. Eoiv was the one questioning Hashem's justice. And he tells them you have to offer offerings to atone for what you have done. So let's try to delve a little deeper into this. Yom Kippur, there's a piyot that's said by many communities, it's called Ela Eskera. It's a very, very uh, emotionally charged uh, poem in which we remember every, every Yom Kippur and Tisha B'Av, the Asara Ruge Malchus, the ten great sages murdered by the Romans, including, of course, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shmuel Kayin Gadol, and so forth. Sarfei Maile Tzaku B'Mare It's a poem. Rabbi Shmuel Kayin Gadol was killed barbarically. Skin of his face flayed, barbaric, like the Romans knew how to do. So the angels in heaven screamed, this is Torah and this is its reward. You hear the rhyme, Hashem, the enemy is desecrating your holy name, desecrating the words of Torah. This is the reward. How do you let this happen? A voice comes from heaven and says, If I hear one more voice, one more sound, I'm going to transform this whole world into water. My footstool, the earth, I'm going to re- restore back to chaos, to emptiness, like in the beginning of creation. This is a decree that came before me, except to those of you who, who toy with the religion of Torah. Now, I ask you a question just to bring out the point. 
A husband is having a little argument with his wife. Of course, present company excluded. I know this doesn't happen here in Muncie, but theoretically. You're having a little argument. Your wife has one position. Let's go here. And you say no. And she says, but why not? Why not? One more word. I'm going to destroy this whole house. I'm not going to make a mitzvah for any kids. In fact, I'm going to move out. I'm going to sell the house. We'll live in a homeless shelter. I'll say he needs a little therapy. They're asking a question. One more sound. One second. Why are you responding this way? Say, They're asking a good question. Rabbi Shmuel Kohen Gadol, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shimon Ben Gamliel, Rabbi Chutzpah Samaturgamir, Rabbi Yehuda Ben Baba, Chanida Ben Tragi, the greatest of the greatest, Zu Torah Vazu Schara. The Rabbi Nishalalam could say, none of your business. Fine. The Rabbi Nishalalam could say, it's not for now. Hashem could say, Adivist Eltevenim, Vestafashtein. Like all of our teachers told us, when you'll get older, you'll understand. Hashem could say, in my business. Don't mix into my business, fine. What's this threat? One more sound, I'm going to destroy not only you, the whole universe. Excusez-moi. First of all, I'm asking a good question. If it wasn't God, you know what I would say? If it was a human conversation, I would say, he doesn't have what to answer. You got him under his, you know, you triggered, you triggered his insecurities, you triggered his demons, you, tri- you triggered the skeletons that he never resolved from his own relationship with his mother. You know what I mean? So he exploded. That's what's happening here. What's the meaning of this? Very difficult to understand. So just to spice it up, everybody knows. The Pasuk, it's actually a CMOS, so if you don't know it from Tanakh, at least you know it from a Sechtemoyed Katan. One day death will be swallowed and Hashem will wipe Dima, a tear, the tear from every face. Comes the Ariza, Rabbeinu Yitzchak Luria, the greatest Kabbalist, and he says, Dima, Begematria Moyed. And it's the end of Moyed Katan. <laughs> Dima, tears, is the same gematria like Moyed, which is a holiday, a yomtif. There's only one problem. It's not. Dima is 119. Moyed is 120, right? Yeah, you can make the calculation. Dima has Mem, Ayin, Dalit, and hey, Moyed has Mem, Ayin, Dalit, and Vav. It's one more, it's 120. So of course the commentators answer very simple. You know what imakoilel means? I'll explain to you. When you have two words that are the same gematria, so if it fits, great. What if it doesn't fit? Right? So you add one more. How do you add one more? Imakoilel. You add the fact that there's one word. You add the klal, the general word, all the letters included. So dima, together with the koilel, together with one word, dima, becomes 120. At first glance, you read this, and you're like, okay, your gematria didn't work, so you give me a koilel. Thank you. It's like an anecdote somebody once told me, 
there was a fundraiser from Israel. He would come to a very wealthy man in America for a koilo that he had. And he told the guy, you know, he has 200 young Goliath in koilo. They sit and learn day and night. He pays them, of course, a lot of money every month. And the guy trusted him and he used to give him a check every single year, $300,000. Nice check. One time, this wealthy supporter came to America. He said, you know what, let me jump into the koilo. So he jumps in, he comes to America from Israel. So he, I'm sorry, he came to Israel. Let him jump into the koilo. So he jumps into the koilo and it was like, it was a marshal. The koilo was a metaphor. It was a parable. It existed in concept. There was no koilo. There was no house. There were no young light. There was no swanum. There was not even coffee. And of course, what's a koilo without coffee, right? He doesn't say anything. He goes back home very disappointed. The next year, the fundraiser, the Rosh Koyla, comes to him. He says, the Koyla has been growing by leaps and bounds. I don't even know where we're going to put them all. Maybe you can uh, double double your donation. $600,000, not so much for you. He says, I'm happy, I'm happy to give. Takes out his checkbook, the man is very excited. He gives him an $18 check. He says, here. He says, Eighteen dollars? At least, at least like last year. Last year you gave me three hundred thousand. Why are you giving me eighteen? He says it's eighteen im hakoylo. <laughs> it's eighteen with the koylo. So it's very funny when you read through Jewish books. You see it. The gematria im hakoylo. What is it? A joke? It doesn't fit im hakoylo, especially such a serious thing. So now here we'll be able to see a little bit of the untold layers of depth in Torah. The first part they say from the Vilna Gon. The second part I heard myself from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Here's the Vilna Gon's vart. He said as follows. There was a king who wanted to put on a new tuxedo, got the most expensive silk from Italy, summoned the Jewish talented tailor, gives him the material and says, you weave for me a most extraordinary me'il, a most extraordinary tuxedo. But be careful, because this material is the most expensive fabric you'll find on earth. The Jew says, of course. Three months later, he delivers a cloak to the king, but a cloak, a cloak is not the word. It was a shenkite. It was glory itself. The monarch was overwhelmed. Its beauty was dazzling, attractive, appealing. He puts it on, something extraordinary. Of course, like in every good story, there's a bishop. There's always a bishop. The bishop, who this bishop is, I don't know. But Marshal Hoya, it's a bishop. Unfortunately, we actually did know often who the bishop was. The bishop comes in. Says Adoni Amelech, beautiful job, wow. But you know what? I'm afraid, you know, these Jews you can't trust, they're money hungry. Maybe he took a little bit of the fabric and he kept it for himself. He could make a, a steal from it, he make, he make a killing. Besides what you're paying him, he'll sell that or use it. The king says, No, he's an honest man. He says, I would I would double check. He says, How do I double check? He says, well, you know the dimensions of the, gar- the fabric you gave him? He says, of course. It's all written down. He says, so let's measure the garment and let's see. Of course, they measure the dimensions of the garment. And it falls short 
from the dimensions of the original fabric material that he gave the tailor. The tailor is arrested, thrown into a dungeon, treason. You took the precious property of the king himself and you stole it before his eyes, in his presence. Then sentenced to death. Before they kill, they grant you your last wish. So the king turns to the Jewish tailor and says, what's your last wish? So my last wish is you bring me the cloak with scissors. King brings him the cloak, scissors. He takes this beautiful cloak, takes the scissor, puts it on the cloak, and is about to cut. The king says, what are you doing? It's so beautiful. He says, this is my last wish. I want to cut it. He's in a dilemma. He says, but why? Why do you want to cut it? Why? What are you going to gain from it? He says, it's very simple. I didn't lie. Every centimeter of material that you gave me is in this tuxedo. But we measured it. The dimensions don't match. He says, I can prove it. But for me to prove it, I have to open it up. Cut it open. Remove every single thread. Undo the whole garment the way I got it in the beginning. And then you will see that I can account for every last inch, every last centimeter of this fabric. I just had to fold it over in different ways to produce this piece of fabric. Zagdevil Nagon. Hashem wasn't responding with impulsive anger. They said, why? He said, you want an answer? I have to undo the garment. Take out every single thread. Go back all the way to the beginning. Those are the words he told aretz. Were you there with me when And then I could show you that every single thread, every last detail, every single experience can be accounted for. There's some meaning, there's purpose, but for that, I have to restore the world of Toyo Now, where do you see this? This is what Arizal is saying. There's Dima and there's Mayat. Are they the same or are they not the same? We often hear from people, everything is good. Epsakum from Bashafra is good. It's good, it's wonderful, you're going to get Elam Haba, it's just cleansing the pain, it's a Gilgal, Elam Haba, Neshama, whatever the calculations are. Just celebrate. Comes the Arizal and says, Dima Begematria Moyet. Tears. And Yomtev. Visamachta Bechagecha. Holiday is a time of Simcha. When somebody Chalila is sitting Shiva, comes Yomtev. It's completely mafsik, completely ends it. And there's an obligation of Simcha. Dima is tears, diametrically opposed. Comes the Arizal and says, they're the same numerology. Dima and Moyet come from the same source. They represent the same reality. But there's one qualification. What's the qualification? Im What does the koilal represent? Im If you could see the koilal, if you can have a perspective of the whole klal of history, from the beginning of time to the end of time, from the genesis of creation to after Mashiach, when you can see the full koilal, the full encompassing picture from a bird's eye view, from God's view of history, then Dima Begematria Mayat. 
Or as the Navi Amoy says that that day by Yoimahu, Nigash Chayrish Bekoitzer. When Mashiach comes, the plower and the harvester will meet. The koila will meet. The beginning and the end will meet. Till that day, Dima is not the Gematri Hamayet. Dima is Dima. Dima is tears. And Mayet is Simcha holidays. It's two very different experiences. So when Eoiv hears all this, he says, I don't know. What he learns to understand is, if you'll take your three-year-old son and put him into, put him into the highest shear in Beis Medrash, and the Rosh Hashiva is giving over a Reb Chaim, a Birch Shmuel, a Shagasarye, a Ktsois, a Nesivis, a Rajbud, and then you'll ask your three-year-old, how was it? He'll say, stupid and boring. I'm never going back to that stupid place again. And you'll take your four-year-old girl and you'll put her into a class of a professor of nuclear physics. And she'll tell you, the guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Strange things. And nobody is surprised. You can't expect a three-year-old boy to understand a class or a sheer for the level of 20-year-olds, of 30-year-olds, highly educated people who went through 15, 20 years of training in this particular subject. And nobody is surprised if she thinks it's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. Even though when she gets older, she may outsmart the professor. Probably she will. And he may outsmart his teacher. Still nobody is surprised. This is only a difference between a finite mind and a more developed finite mind. Yet one expects that a finite mind of man should be able to wrap its brain around an infinite mind that's absolutely limitless when I can't even know a single atom. Forget the creator. Even the creation, the brilliance in the human brain, no one understands. There's only a hundred million neurons that are connected to each other. Wires that are connected, making hundreds of millions of decisions at a moment. This is the human brain. Nobody could even begin to simulate with all of our computers. So Eiv says, Eiv says, I don't know. But what's fascinating is that Hashem says, I'm upset with you guys, the friends. Eiv's lack of knowledge, Eiv's not flattering and saying, yeah, yeah, it's good, somehow is more right. Why? Why are they condemned? Why are they condemned? I heard something from somebody once that I'll never forget. It was a woman came over to me after a lecture on this topic. And she said she wants to share something with me. It's always hard for me to share. But I think it's important to share. It gives us a lot of perspective. It gave me a lot of perspective. She said that her child was diagnosed with cancer when he was four. He suffered terribly. After a few months, he was in the hospital. He turned to his mother and he asked a question. And you know what his question was? Why did this happen to me? She told me these words. She said, Rabbi Jacobson, I was stupid. And I said, it could be that in a previous Gilgal, in a previous incarnation, you did some wrong things. And this is your tikkun. This is your fixing. She said, my son did not argue with me. He just turned his eyes away and never spoke about it again. And I realized that moment that I failed him. I failed him. Two years later, he was still dealing with it. Two years passed. 
he turned to me and said, why did this happen to me? I thought, she tells me, I became so much smarter. After these two hellish years, I became smarter. I tell him, you're a tzaddik, and Hashem tests tzaddikim. That's why. You're a very righteous person. God tests the righteous. She tells me, my son turned his eyes away again. I knew I failed him. I regretted it immediately, but I said what I said. And he wouldn't bring it up again. But I knew that I, I betrayed him. She tells me, they cured it. And he was, uh, he, was, he was fine. He went back to school. When he was 11, it came back. In a vengeance. He was in the hospital at the age of 11. And he turns to me a third time. And he says, Ma, why did this happen to me? And she says to me, she says, Robert Jacobson, after all these years, I did become smarter. I looked my son in the eyes. I held his hand. And I called him by his name, and I said to him, I don't know. And she said he did not turn his eyes away. His eyes stayed there. That's what he wanted to hear. He needed to hear that. You know why? He needed to have the dignity of somebody validating the depth of the mystery and not just rationalizing it and putting it into a box. Two weeks later, he passed away. She shared this with me. I'll never forget it. Not long ago, I was sitting at a kumzitz here in Muncie, somebody's home. He invited a bunch of young people. It was a Mitzay Shabbos. There's a boy sitting near me. In the middle of one of the songs, after it was probably two or three in the morning, I was like a teenager again, he turns to me and he says, Rabbi, why did my mother die? I didn't know his mother died. He's a boy from England. His mother had nine children. She fell ill and she passed away. He was before his bar mitzvah. He told this to me. And he says, why did my, why did, why did this happen? My father had to raise nine kids on his own. He says, years I was angry at God. I didn't put on tefillin. I hated Yiddishkeit. Now, slowly, this yeshiva, is, he's finding his way to Yiddishkeit. So I was sitting there. So I put my hand on him and I said... I don't know. The mist, these are the mysteries of life. It's, it's completely beyond me. I, I don't know what to say. It's horrible. He starts crying. I didn't say anything. I listened. And then he told me something. He said, it's been eight years since my mother died. This was the answer I was waiting for. I went to many people, and everybody gave me a reason, and it made me angry that they were giving me reasons. Why are they giving me reasons? How do they know? And then I understood what Eiv, what happened with Eiv. You know, they wanted to make God fit into their box. They shouldn't be shaken up. So they made a statue. You sinned, so it makes sense. You did this. That way everything makes sense. Eoiv says, I really don't know. But that doesn't mean I'm going to change the fact and say that I'm a sinner. The dignity that a person in pain deserves is incredibly important to understand. It's more true 
it's more real, and it's more authentic. And you know where else you see this? You know where you see this? I have to say, a few weeks ago, I did a Shabbaton near Lakewood. So Rabbi Aaron Reich was there, one of the Rosh Hashivas in Lakewood, Rabbi Shnei Yekatla's son-in-law. So he told me a vart, beautiful vart, I never heard it before. The Beis Yisrael, the Gerer Rebbe, met a Litvisherov, a Lithuanian rabbi, and the Litvisherov told him as follows. We say every Thursday from Tehillim, Eidus bihoisif somoi betseisoy al Eretz Mitzrayim, Svas loyo dati eshma. Yosef comes out as the king of Egypt. The language, I hear the language of I don't know. It's a very mysterious and cryptic pasuk. So he said as follows. Why was Pare so impressed with Yosef? Why was Pare so impressed with Yosef? He says, Pare asked Yosef to explain his dream. He says, I heard they say about you, you know how to explain a dream. What did Yosef say? One word. Sorry, I don't do these things. I don't know what your dream means. God could maybe respond. Pari never heard this. Everyone in Egypt was an expert. Everybody knows exactly what everyone is dreaming about. Sfas loyadati eshma. The first time I heard a language, loyadati. Pare was blown away. Wow, somebody doesn't know. That's awesome. You don't know. I don't know. Now we can hold hands. We believe today that everybody has to know. Everybody knows. What do you know? You don't even know what your nose looks like. You can't even understand one emotion of yours fully. What do we know? Svas loyadati. He was so impressed. Loyadati with a new language. That's why it's the best answer. It's a real answer. Svas loyadati yashma. But there's something even deeper here. Take Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu standing in front of a burning bush. He says, I want to go see a surah era. I want to see it. Hashem introduces himself from the burning bush. What does he say? This is me, your God. I'm in the burning bush. What happens? Moshe hides his face because he's scared to look at Elikim. I don't want to look at Hashem. He hides his face. Granted. The next scene, Hashem says, I saw the pain of my people. I want to send you to liberate them. So the Gemara says in Brachis, Davzayin Amad Aleph, the Gemara says, as a reward for Moshe Rabbeinu hiding his face, what happened? He merited in Parshas Baloischa, Utmunas Hashem Yabit, to gaze at the image of Hashem. And one wonders, what type of reward is this? He didn't want to look at Hashem, so he's rewarded with that which he didn't want. <laughs> you reward something that which he wants. He didn't want, so you're rewarding him. So Rabbeinu Bechaya and the Ponim Yofas both say, you're making one mistake. By the snench, Moiset says, Ki kim. In Parshas Baloischa it says, Utmunas Hashem Yabit Yutkei It's a different name. He didn't want to look at Elikim, he saw Yutkei What is the meaning of this? One of the explanations that has been given is as follows. 
The burning bush, the Medrash says in Shmois, Medrash Rabba Shmois was a symbol of Jewish suffering. He saw that the bush was consumed in flames, but it's not being destroyed. The story of the Jewish people. The Jewish people burned for thousands of years. But they were indestructible. And Moshe saw this. And suddenly, the Rebbeiner Shaloyla made an offer to Moshe that he never made before or after. And you know what the offer was? He introduced himself from the flames and he said, It's me. Moshe, I will invite you to see me in the fire. I will give you a gift. I will allow you to perceive me in the pain. Imagine. Humanity sees pain and all we see is pain. Tears, tragedy, horror. And we say, why? Who? Moshe, I will allow you to see me. In other words, to see purpose, to see meaning, to see goodness, to see the presence of divinity in the fire. That was the offer. You know what Moshe did? Moshe told Hashem, thank you, but no thank you. He turned away his face. I don't want to see. Why not? Why not? Why not? I'll tell you why not. There's two types of pain in the world, my dear friends. There's pain which we observe and we understand its value. And that pain is not that painful. So for example, People undergo surgery every day. Surgery is painful. Nobody should ever need it. But people do it. Why do they do it? Why? Not because they want pain. Because they see the benefits. As a result of the surgery, their lives will be saved. Your child has a splinter in his finger. And you take a tweezer and you take out the splinter and he says, Mommy, stop it! You're the worst mommy in the world. You feel bad, but you won't stop. Why? Because you understand the benefit. This pain is necessary so that the splinter should not develop chalila in an infection. In fact, anything significant in life requires pain. Waking up in the morning is not painful for many of us. Why do you press snooze four times? Why weren't you by the second today? <laughs> it's painful. So why do you wake up in the morning? It's a necessary pain if you want a paycheck. <laughs> Anything, everything is painful. Cooking for Shabbos, that's why you come to the shear. <laughs> okay, now, this big pain, this small, all of life is, you invest, and you reap the harvest. The more the tzara, the more the agra, the more the pain, the more the schar. That pain we all make peace with. You know why? We understand the value, the benefit. We see the correlation between the pain and the rewards, the profits. But there's another type of pain in the world. And that's the pain which we look at and we don't understand. Why? What's gained? What benefit? What value? What purpose? This shatters us because we don't understand. Who gains from this type of pain? Who benefits from it? Why? Why? That pain really hurts. When Moshe Rabbeinu is offered by Hashem to see God in the flames, he says, no. You know why? You understand why? Because if he says yes, in other words, he will be able to understand 
the meaning behind pain, he will never again be able to feel what the Jewish people are going through and empathize with them. He will be like the parent taking out the splinter. So Moshe Rabbeinu tells Hashem, I will not look because I must stay with my people. I need the fire, the cry, why should burn in every bone of my body. And that's why Moshe Rabbeinu could stand up at the end of Shmois and say, Why? What type, what type of why? Moshe, I, just show, I was about to show you the purpose, the meaning. Moshe said, I want to be with my people. This perhaps is his greatest moment. You know why? He rejected heaven for the sake of earth. He rejected Kivayachal Hashem for the sake of Hashem's children. When Hashem saw this, he says, Ah, now I know you're the leader of the Jewish people. Thus is our Rebbe. Now I'm going to send you to redeem them. Zogdi Gemara. Bishar that Moshe said, Kiyori Mehabit Elikim. He didn't want to look at Elikim. He didn't want to see Midas Hadin. He didn't want to see Hashem in the negative, in the evil, in the pain. He was Zoycha to Smunas Hashem Yabit. To see Yudke to see the Hisgalos, the revelation of compassion. He saw Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, he saw Kriyas Yamsov, he saw Matan he saw the explosion of love, of compassion, of redemption in the most abundant way because he refused to make peace with Elikim. Reb Moshe Leib says, everything comes from holiness. Everything comes from Hashem. What's so holy about atheism, about apikursus? Everything comes from Hashem. So kfira also comes from Hashem. What's so godly about it? And you know what he says? Reb Moshe Leib ah. He says, when you see somebody in pain. He says, sometimes people see somebody in pain. And you know what they say? Ah, the Ebersh Devetalfen. God will help you. God, I'm sure, has good reasons. And Moshe Leib says, now is a moment for apikursus. Your call, Hashem has His plans. We know that. What your job is? Your job is not to understand pain. Your job is to alleviate pain. Your job is to stop it. Your job is to help it. Your job is not to understand it, to comprehend it, to say, ah, I get it. What a wonderful plan, God, you're awesome. That's his job. Your job is, say, what can I do to stop this? What can I do to help you? What can I do to change this fate through actions, through words, through prayers, through deeds, whatever it may be, through tzedakah and so on and so forth. That's the job of the human being. Hashem is upset with the friends of Eiv. Now at last, I want to address one final point. And that is the fact that throughout Jewish history, and it's one of, it's an extraordinary thing, we see it every day, and I know personally many people who have endured tremendous pain in their life. And uh, you see that not only did it not uh, 
destroy them as people. Not only did it not undermine their life, destroy their joy, their trust, their optimism, but even their relationship with Hashem has been not compromised, sometimes strengthened. And uh, I want to share with you another perspective here. We often hear about punishment. But here is a perspective that has nothing to do with punishment. And frankly, the Yisurim that the Jewish people went through for 2,000 years are so astronomical. We are one goof. Those Yisurim have refined the Jewish people. It's very hard to say with certainty that things are happening because of people's sins and we're getting punished. The Rambam says everybody has to look into their life and see where they can become better. But to give a psak din, to give a verdict, this happened because of his sin, his sin, their sin, the community's sin. Unless you're a prophet, one has to be very careful with such words. A cheshben nefesh is always in order. There's always a calling, there's a message. How do I enhance my life? How do I create less darkness and more light? But here I want to share with you a perspective that has nothing to do with punishment. I put it in the quotes and the sources. It's very, very deep. And I'm telling you, it's heavy. It's not so easy to read. It's very heavy. But it always moved me. It always touched me very deeply from the day I read it many years ago. It was written by a man who himself suffered a lot. Sometimes people write about these things and they don't know. You know, they, they, they sit in an ivory tower and they talk about pain. But this was written by a person who personally in his life suffered materially and spiritually from brothers and friends and other Jews. And this is in Tanya, chapter 26, Perik Chavav. It's a whole section there, but I'm reading one, reading one paragraph, literally a few lines. The Mara says, those who accept pain and they're still joyous, the Pasuk says, his beloved ones will experience the sun when it comes out in its full might. And he explains, The simcha one can have, whatever happens in their life, is the fact that a person loves being close with Hashem more than anything else in the world. Tehillim says, your kindness, being one with you, is better than everything. It's more better than everything, just to be with you. And the closeness of Hashem is infinitely deeper in the concealed world. There his strength is hidden and the highest one sits in concealment. What is the Balatanya saying here? Very briefly, he's saying something very profound. Imagine a new teacher, a new Rebbe, a new Rosh Yeshiva is trying to give a shear to the Yeshiva he was just hired. So he wants to impress the crowd. So what does he do? He throws every source he knows and he gives them a shear on his level and he's really a genius. He tells them everything he knows in the deepest way. And you know what happens? Everybody is sitting there and it goes, whoa, right over their heads. You ask anybody, you know what he said? I don't know a thing he said. 
when he restricts his information, when he condenses it, when he compresses it, so that they understand, he doesn't share his full genius and brilliance, then everybody could understand. The more you share the intensity of yourself, the more it overwhelms people, right? Even in a regular conversation. If I was to ask you, they say the definition of a nudnik is, you ask him how he's doing and he actually tells you. If I ask you what's going on, and you start pouring out your soul, right? the deeper it is, the more intense it is. We usually say, Baruch Hashem, fine, Gefa, yeah. Baruch Shepatrani. You look at the light, at the sunlight, it's blinding. You can't look at the sun, it's too intense. The Rav, the Rosh Hashiva, if he gives you his whole genius, it shatters you. You go away with a migraine headache. He has to give you a little bit. This is even by people. By the Rebbeinu Shaloylam, there's Alma de Skasi and Alma de Zgalia. This is Kabbalistic Hasidic terminology. Alma from Zoyer. Alma de Zgalia means revealed. Alma de Skasi means concealed. When, when we, we get something that feels good, what is it? It's Hashem condensing His energy like little drops of water so that it works well with our system. What happens when Hashem shears with somebody His deepest self? You know what it feels like? When Hashem shears with somebody His deepest, deepest essence, you know what it feels like? Huh? That's pain, that's pain, that's pain. Because our vessels are limited. So for us to experience it, in other words, I say, ah, the water, for this cup to get the water, it has to be seven ounces. Imagine you give me 200 million ounces of water in this cup. What do you think is going to happen to the cup? I don't need, I need seven ounces of water. My brain, my heart, my life has a system, a pattern. When Hashem restricts His energy and He gives us that, ah, wonderful! That's the beautiful life we all want. Says the Balatanya, what's pain? Pain is God sharing His own depth. His, and it's infinite. And because it's infinite, it shatters the vessels. It overwhelms the human being. Yoshev b'seser elyon. In seser, in concealment is elyon. Kisham chev So there's two types of people. There's a person, the definition of joy is to have nice, cute things in life. There's another person that for them the definition of life is kirvas Hashem, a relationship with God. Says the Balatanya, the relationship with Hashem person who's having pain, God is, so to speak, inviting them into Kodesh HaKadosh. He's inviting them into a different space of life. They see life different. They see death different. They see love different. They see the world from a different perspective. He invites them into his private personal chamber, which is overwhelming, which is shattering. Now, we don't pray for this. We pray for revealed good. And we still don't understand. This doesn't answer a question. Because why can't we have both? The Bistach God. Give me the intense infinity and give it to me in a way that I can appreciate. We don't have an answer for this. What this does, it expands the space of conversation. So that's why he continues, he says, when the sun comes out of its, of its nartik, of its cover-up, because they wanted the sun over everything else. This is a person 
what he wants is, he wants to be Kirvasalikim. And the closeness to Hashem is much more in Almadis Kasi than Almadis Galia. And here he has a second piece, Igeris Akoidr Siminyad Aleph. If a person will meditate depth, in, de- in depth, and he'll imagine his creation every single moment from nothing, if he realizes every single moment God is creating him, and he is the source of goodness and pleasure. So this Jew, what is he experiencing in life? It may feel very painful, but what he's experiencing is, Kirvas Elikim Mamish, Hashem is giving this to him right now. It's incomprehensible. It's something that one cannot wrap their brain around because it's God sharing his deepest, deepest self that shatters the structure of a person because the structure of a person is based on finiteness. So this is not punishing him. He's inviting him into the mystery, the intimate divine mysteries of life. Is it an explanation? I don't think we have her an explanation. We have her a certain type of experience. A person who experiences this in a certain type of way. It's translated by the person as horrible as pain. And it's called pain, it's called negative, it's called ra. But the truth is, it's God sharing His deepest, deepest goodness, which completely transcends the experience of a person. This is the main emuna for which a person was created. The main purpose, the main emuna for which a person was created was this. To believe that there's no space devoid of him. And if he's there, it's life. In his space there's joy and confidence. So to believe that there's no space where he is not, and if he's there, there's joy here, there's goodness here. Even though in my experience, I don't get this. This is like so. In a person's life, a person is going through a challenge. A person is going through a difficult moment. What the Balatanya is saying here is, you were created right now. This moment was created right now. This experience was created right now. God Himself is right here giving it to you in this space. What looks horrible is really a different level of good that is a calling, an invitation to infinity. For this you have to destroy all your paradigms, suspend your way of thinking, and open yourself up to His world, which is not your world. Alkain, therefore, Reishis Hakel, the beginning is, Beautiful words. A person should be happy every single moment. The G'dayle Achsidis despise depression. He should mamish come to life with his faith in God who every single moment is one, loves him and is doing good with him. 
Weil kein hier chiku midos ha'atzvus b'ma'oyin chachmei ha'emes. The sages of truth, meaning all chachmei ha'kabola v'achsidus, despised the attribute of depression. Aval ha'maymin lo'yachish b'shum yisurim ba'olam b'bechol inyoni ha'olam hein v'lav shovenetz le'bashva ha'mitis. The real maimin, yes and no, is identical. In other words, it's how he thinks about it, how she thinks about it. The facts I can't change. Whatever happens, I can't change. The facts are the facts. Those are the facts. How I think about the facts. Either I think about the facts, I'm a victim of a terrible situation, or I think about the facts, this is God's gift to me right now at this moment, to know that He's here, and it's the deepest, deepest goodness, even if that, but that often means that I have to think completely differently about everything. Because it doesn't fit in to my cup. Cup as in cup, and cup as in the more complicated, the more complicated cup. There's a niggin from Rabbi Yitzchak Badetsheva. You know the niggin? A lot of, many people don't know it. Rabbi Yitzchak of Badichev, who was one of the closest friends of the Balatanya, both students of the Magad of Mizrich, passed away three years apart. Badichev passed away Tishrei Tovkov Ayin, 1809, and the Alter of Liadi Tevis Tovkov Ayin Gimel, Tevis 1812. They were very, very close friends. Extremely, very mamish. So Rabbi Yitzchak has a nigin, a beautiful nigin. It's called Adudala. Adudala. And I want to share with you one part of the It's a long, it's, it's relatively a long nigan. I mean, not that long, but relatively a long nigan. But there's one part of the nigan that sums this up in a very powerful way. Now remember who is the person behind this song. He lived this song. He breathed, he breathed this, and he's been through a lot too. We talk about the Baditchever, you know, the sweet, sweet Jew. He's been through a lot. He's been through a lot. He was persecuted. It's not for now, but he was persecuted terribly, including from his own brothers, from, from Jews. It was, a hard, it was a hard situation, besides in his personal life and family. So there's one line of the Nigan. He says, the Nigan starts, Riboy noy shaloy lom ich vil aduda letzu dir spillen. Aye emza eko riboy noy shaloy lom, va aye loy emza eko riboy noy shaloy lom. Avu velech de gifinen riboy noy shaloy lom, unavu velech de nish gifinen riboy noy shaloy lom. Where will I find you, Hashem? Where can I find you? But where can I not find you? Where are you? I don't know, but where are you not? I also don't know. He says, My ledu, matadu, maidavdu, mizrachdu, tsafendu, daremdu, du, 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 du. Up is you, and down is you, and east is you, and west is you, and north is you, and south is you. And then he says, Oipsegut, isdachdu. 
Chalilonisht is vider do, unaib do is doch gut, do, 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 do. If it's good, it's you. If it's not good, heaven forbid, it's also you. And if it's you, it's good. You, 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 you. What is the Baditshiva telling us? The Baditshiva is saying there's a different paradigm, there's a different perspective. Not all pain has not all pain has to do with sin. Not all pain has to do with punishment. Not all pain has to do with atonement. Some, some not. Sometimes it's a whole different experience. Sometimes it's holy, holy people. They're not being punished. They're not being cleansed because they're, they're bad people at all. They don't have to feel guilty. They don't understand why. Eoiv didn't understand. They don't understand. And yet their relationship with God has never been compromised. Because for them, the meaning of life was not easy. The meaning of life was not to be as comfortable and as easy as you can. The meaning of life is to be in a relationship. To be in a relationship with the Almighty every moment. That was the meaning of life. And the relationship was as powerful as ever in the pain. And in fact, sometimes much deeper. Have a wonderful and blessed week. Let's go even deeper. What, what does it even mean that a person is being punished for sin? We spoke a few weeks ago. It's not you sinned. So I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'll take revenge. You started up with me, I'll start up with you. Even that is, yeah, it's a form in order, when a person sins, they destroy themselves. The punishment is there, excuse me, in order for them to be able to regain their true identity, right? Like we spoke about, uh, you clean your shirt. You're not punishing the shirt. You want the shirt or the socks to, to go back to its original glory. So even a punishment for sin, it doesn't mean stam. I'm punishing the person. I'm going to teach him a lesson because he started up with me. I'm going to take revenge. It's all an akuda of love that somehow this is essential for the person. Yeah, but we call it punishment. I think the word is not punishment. We say in English punishment, but I think that when we hear punishment, what we hear is therapy. It's a form of therapy. person has stuff inside, they have to spit it out. Not everything is that. Not everything but I'm is saying that. even punishment is not stam, punishment, yeah, I'm taking the comma. You start it up with me, I'll teach you a lesson. But for somebody to say that this is because of that, or this is because of that, that is not uh, acceptable. Yeah, unless you're a Navi. Don't make him gerecht. Help him. Is gerecht. That's what the Kedusha Slevi says. Beautiful. Yeah, the Ebrishters will get in Yidin Toi Vanira Vanigla. They already had enough. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net.
slash donate.